Bitcoin is the first perfected digital monetary network in the history of the world. It doesn't lose energy over time or space. It reflects the laws, it, it, it respects the laws of thermodynamics. It's never been done before. It's dominating everything that competes with it, right? There's no reason to believe it won't be 10 times bigger than 100 times bigger than 1,000 times bigger. And it's just, it, it's hard to see how you stop it. Chatting with the most fascinating minds in the Bitcoin space, this is a Bitcoin Audible chat. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. Uh, we have got Michael Saylor on the show today, CEO of MicroStrategy and a, uh, a guy who has made a massive uh, impact in Bitcoin in very little time, uh, sinking, essentially committing to making Bitcoin the dominant treasury reserve asset for their company. Um, and this has been major news. We've talked about it in the most recent guys take with the dominoes are falling. Um, and I think this is just a major event. And I was very lucky to get to sit down with Michael for uh, just over an hour and just pick his brain and talk with him about all this crazy stuff. And literally in the last uh, few months, they have purchased over 38,000 Bitcoin uh, into their, their treasury. It is now by far the vast majority of their company's holdings, and Michael is going to explain exactly why. Before we get into it, though, I wanted to throw a big thank you to Hexa Wallet. Um, they are now supporting the podcast. I first spoke with Anant about a year ago, actually a little over, um, at Bitblock Boom last year, and we've kind of had a loose conversation going on for a while. And I have really kind of been falling in love with Hexa Wallet. And I admit, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it at the beginning. But some of the features in this thing have been blowing my mind. And one of the ones that just stood out when we were talking the other day is that there is built-in no-complexity batching. So I can just go to my contact list in this wallet and select any number of contacts I want, as well as one of my other wallets. Like I can send it from my one, uh, one key to my multi-signature wallet. Um, in the same app, and I just select them all and how much I want to send to any of them, and it automatically writes it as a single transaction to save on fees. That's the first time I have ever seen that in a Bitcoin wallet, and it's stupid easy. So huge shout out to those guys. Thank you, obviously, for supporting the podcast, but also for the kind of amazing tool that they're building right now. If you want to check that out, go to hexawallet.io. But now it is time to get into our conversation with Michael Saylor. I just want to officially welcome Michael Saylor to the show, CEO of MicroStrategy. And uh, in very short order, uh, probably the most famous person in Bitcoin. <laughs> well, thank you, Guy. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Nice of you. Um, so uh, you have made. Uh, some pretty serious waves recently um, for uh, buying up somewhere near point, somewhere between 0.1 and 0.2% of uh, all 
a future Bitcoin supply and uh, making a hell of a bold move into uh, just serious conviction into seeing kind of the next steps in the future with uh, your company, MicroStrategy. That you've made Bitcoin the dominant treasury reserve. Now, before we get into all the dynamics of that and how you made that decision, I kind of want to just, for any of the audience that doesn't know, what is MicroStrategy and kind of give us the, in a nutshell, version of how you found yourself here. MicroStrategy is, we're a publicly traded company. We're the largest publicly traded business intelligence company in the world, at least independent one. So okay. we're a pure play. We, we sell enterprise software to large corporations and governments, banks, airlines, agencies, um, finance companies, retailers that want to uh, build sophisticated analytical applications on top of their own internal proprietary databases. We got into this business way back in the early 90s. Yeah, the idea was to extract you know, everything that McDonald's sold this week versus a year ago this week and calculate the, the uplift and the effective marketing and, and market basket analysis. And then eventually it became credit risk analysis. And every major enterprise has got some sophisticated application they need to build on top of their data. We provide a platform of tools to them. And uh, we've been doing it now for 31 years. So that's what we do. Nice. Okay. So when you talked about, uh, uh, like, when did you, you kind of fell into micro strategy? You talked about this on Pomp's podcast in the interview. Um, I where started did that when I was 24. In, in when? When I, was, when I was 24. When you were 24. Um, how did... Was this something that like kind of you you said something about like it just kind of fell into your lap like like micro strategy just seemed to work? Yeah, um, so the short of it is I wasn't trying to start a company, right? When I was in high school, I was trying to be a rock star. When I was in college, I was trying to be an astronaut. You know, I got a degree in aeronautics and astronautics. I learned to fly in the Air Force. You know, I was all ready to go. I had my route from from fighter pilot to test pilot to astronaut all mapped out. Oh, wow. Um, that, that didn't work out. Uh, it didn't work out because a doctor diagnosed me with a benign heart murmur, and he was wrong. Ten years later, it turned out I didn't have one. But no I got, kidding. I got a misdiagnosis in my senior year at MIT that disqualified me from flying jets. He just made a mistake. Um, That's and, crazy. Uh, but I did not – my hopes were dashed and my life was ruined. And I did not know that I did not have a heart murmur until 10 years later when I had already started MicroStrategy and it became largely irrelevant for me. Yeah. But uh, that was my second thing. My third thing was, so I, I was uh, going to go get a PhD and uh, political economy. And I wanted, to, you know, I wanted to uh, be a professor, write books, teach people stuff, learn stuff. And uh, when I tendered my resignation for, to the DuPont Corporation at the age of like 23 and a half or whatever, <laughs> I was all ready to go. I, you know, I would have gone being a professor straight out of uh, MIT. I didn't have any money and I needed a fellowship. And because I got bounced out of the Air Force in the last few months of, uh, of my last semester, I missed the, uh, the filing deadlines for all the fellowships. So, so I figured I'll go work for a year. 
I worked for two years. So I tended my resignation. They didn't want me to quit because I was building a computer simulation that was used to assess the profitability of a multi-billion dollar capital investment in petrochemicals. Okay. So uh, the guy I'm working for is going to get a billion or a billion and a half dollars from his board of directors if the model looks good. And I was the kid that knew how to make the computer model work. And I was the only kid on the Eastern, but in the world at the time that could make it work in time for his board meeting so he could get the money. That's so a responsibility. <laughs> I'm inadvertently standing in between a dude and a billion dollars at age 24. And what am I? I'm a nobody. But I'm a nobody. I quit. The guy sees his billion dollars floating away. He says to his staffers, go give the kid whatever he wants. Well, we can't have him quit before we get the billion dollars. So they said, you want to raise? No. You want, what do you want? You want a new computer? No. You want a bigger <laughs> office? No. Like, you know, what, what do you want? You want more power at DuPont? I'm like, no, I'm not a chemical engineer. I'm never going to be the CEO of DuPont. The only thing I want, other than being a rock star, astronaut, or professor, is the last thing on my checklist was be CEO of your own company. So I said, if you guys let me start my own company, you got to give me the money, give me the office space, give me the people, and I'll do this thing for you. And so MicroStrategy kind of was started that way. And I always thought, well, I'll do it until it fails, and then I'll go back to college and get that PhD. Uh, you know, and it didn't fail. It kept doubling and doubling and doubling, and eventually it was too late to go back to school. So I was stuck in my current role 31 years later. Wow. 30, 31 years of success, and there you go. Um, I still want to be a professor, by the way. Really? What In what? I, I guess it'd be, it, it would be 21st century digital economics. <laughs> 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 oh, that's, that's a, fa see, see right there. That that's like, that is, that is what my show is. That is digital economics. That is a, that is a much better way to describe, um, uh, kind of how all this comes together in Bitcoin. Have you always do you not love what you do? Do what? Do you not love what you do? Oh yeah. I couldn't, I started it for, you know, for free. Like I was just doing it. And then like, I couldn't like anytime I tried to divert and like go do something else because somebody was like openly being like I'll pay you for this like I just got I'm I was so sick of it immediately and I just spent my whole time talking thinking about <laughs> Bitcoin and what was going to happen and listening to books and stuff just like just like the mobile wave even though I actually uh I'm actually really happy that all of this happened because I probably wouldn't have bumped into the mobile wave early uh, uh outside of that your your book by the way for the yeah. audience and guy, I wouldn't have bumped into you or the entire Bitcoin community. So, <laughs> so it's kind of funny how things work. Yeah, yeah. I um, would change places with you if I couldn't do my job. I think you have a you have a fun job. Dude, I I totally agree. I agree absolutely. I love what I do. Um, have you always been kind of a techie, like like just kind of like fascinated with like how the internet grew up like in the nineties and stuff. Like, did you kind of see the writing on the wall then as well? I'm, I'm like a red butted American male. I, I grew up on air force bases. I discovered, I discovered books in first grade. I was a big fan of Robert Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac oh, yeah. Asimov by third grade. And you know, 
third grade, you know, I'm in a, I, I'm chatting with some doctor because I have the flu and the doctor and I are both talking about Robert Heinlein and time enough for love. And my mother's watching the two of us go back and forth and we get to some <laughs> section where we can't talk about with my mother in the room. And that was that. Uh, no, I was, you know, I, I was a big fan of all of that. And I wanted to, I always was fascinated by technology. When I went to MIT, I got a degree in astronautical engineering and space systems, but I also um, got another degree in the history of science. And, uh, and that was kind of, it was interdisciplinary humanities, but I studied the structure of scientific revolutions, the introduction of electricity, the introduction of nuclear energy, the introduction of antibiotics, the, the impact of railroads, network effects, and I was just fascinated by that stuff back in the, in the mid-80s, and I always was fascinated by the history of technology, or, or you should say, the way in which paradigm shifts take place. How is yeah. it that people react to a brand new idea, and what is the impact on the civilization, the society, the economy, once that idea takes hold? Yeah. Dude, that is absolutely one of my, one of the most famous, the uh, fascinating things to me to like go back and read about. I hadn't thought about antibiotics though. That's something I got to find. Is there like a good book on that one? Because I don't think I know anything about the history of that. Well, I, you know, I don't know if there's a good book, but I just make the point. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, a rich Roman in the time of the Antonines, maybe the first second century A.D., could live to age seventy-two. And Augustus Caesar lived to about that age. Mm -hmm. Then we plunge into the Dark Ages, and and we lose the we lose sanitation. The aqueducts break down. People forget that they need to you know run run running water through cities all <laughs> off waste. And the average life expectancy shrinks to 30, 31. Ooh. Then um, you know you got, you fast forward the American Revolution. The average life expectancy of a of a of a American patriot is like 33, 34, you know, then um, you get to Bismarck, <clears throat> 1870, Germany, and Bismarck introduces social security that pays off at 65 years, but the average life expectancy of a German was mid forties. <laughs> they weren't quite to live there. <laughs> In 1900, the turn of the century, average life expectancy of an American is 50. Okay, 50, the good old days. And then in 1950, it goes to 70. Okay, so the massive change in the civilization, it, it, was, it took that long to get back to the life expectancy of a rich Roman. And wow. the number one reason why was the conquest of infectious disease. And we did that probably with the, the combination of the understanding of sterilization, mm -hmm. right, and then antibiotics. Those are the two things that happen. So probably those are the two most monumental things. And antibiotics may, in fact, penicillin may, in fact, be the most significant technology invention in the history of humanity because single-handedly it drove life expectancy up by 20 years, that one, wow. that one idea. And so if you, if you just dig into history of penicillin, you'll probably find some interesting stuff. It's funny how, like, when you, when you start looking back, how young or how recent just the idea of like hygiene is you know like it just you don't have to go far back to realize how much has changed in like the last hundred years um 
Uh, one of my one of my favorite you talk about like paradigm shifts and stuff uh, a book that just just had me from start to finish and one of the most fascinating stories in my in my opinion is ACDC um the just the electricity standards and the the entire like that whole period where electricity was being sold to the public and like you say how people reacted to it and uh, what ended up being the thing that took uh, AC uh, as the dominant, the top dominant force and stuff like that. That whole story is just one of the most insane tales of history uh, to me. Yeah, it is fascinating. The struggle between direct current and alternating current, and people forget that once upon a time, electricity was a technology company. You know, General yeah. Electric, a technology company, Westinghouse. Yeah, I think electricity is a fascinating metaphor too. I'll make two points. One, all the, all the history in the 20th century, all of the millions of pages of, of history written is all about politics and, and, and war and, and uh, entertainment and it's colorful and gossipy. But probably if you took one paragraph, the paragraph that describes the invention of penicillin, that's probably more important and more consequential to, to human prosperity or misery than everything else you could read. <laughs> so, you know, historians tend to get hijacked by stuff that is not important and the stuff that's really important, the fact that you're not going to die 20 years earlier, that could be boiled down to like two paragraphs that most people overlook. Yeah. So that, that's one observation. The second is with regard to history, with electricity, I think electricity is fascinating because you could metaphorically describe Bitcoin as simply a monetary energy network. Or in fact, it's the first closed energy system to transmit energy across time and space that doesn't suffer from loss, line loss, or from battery drainage. It's a battery plus a network. So yeah. if you look at, if you look at uh, most power systems, you lose two to 6% of the power from the station to your home and you can't move electricity more than about a thousand miles and practically speaking 500 miles. So taking electricity from the East coast of the United States to Tokyo, the loss of energy would be obscene because you'd have to convert it into like, you probably got to put it as crude oil in a tanker, you know, float it yeah. around the world and then take it out and burn it. Yeah. Okay, so you're probably talking about 20, 30, 40% energy loss to do that. And on the other hand, energy eventually flows into a battery. And in the mobile wave, I write that, you know, lithium ion batteries are critical to mobile devices. No batteries, no mobile devices, no mobile wave, right? Yeah. It's a critical element. When you put electricity into a battery, you're generally losing 2% of the power per month. Kind of interesting, 24% a year brain drain or, or electric power drain. You know, it sounds kind of like 24% a year negative real yield. Yeah. If you, put, you know, yeah. if you put your money into, uh, into a, a currency that's being inflated, yeah, you, I could make an argument that, um, that uh, long bond assets, you know, had uh, an inflation rate of 22% this year so far. They're up 22, per, you know, in other uh -huh. words, Fed is printing money and those bonds spike 22%. So if you were holding cash and wanted to convert, you lost 22% of your money or 22% drain. 
So if you look at gold, if you compared a battery of Bitcoin and a battery of gold, and I put all of my money into Bitcoin, I put $100 million into Bitcoin, there's effectively no dilution once you, if you calculate the fully diluted Bitcoin count from here to infinity, you're gonna have 21 million Bitcoin. So yeah. I know that. The worst yeah. case is there's 15% dilution over 150 years, right? Worst case. But the logical case is there's no, there's so no bad. dilution. It's a completely closed system. Yeah. On the other hand, I put all my money into gold. The best case is 2% a year. They're gonna print more, they're gonna mine more gold 2% a year. That means over 100 years, you're gonna lose 85% of your energy. You know, you, you get cut in half every 35 years at 2%, which means that you're down to like 12.5% in 100 years. Gold as a battery is draining energy at least 2% a year. But more reasonably speaking, if you consider that the price of gold goes up, miners invest more capital in order to produce more gold. Uh, as time goes by, human beings get smarter. They invent stuff. and Like fracking. You remember fracking? Remember when yeah. we had a, a, an oil crisis in this country because we didn't have enough crude oil and then all of a sudden the price of oil went up enough that we doubled the amount of crude oil we produced every day and then we mm. didn't have any oil limits anymore yeah. well so over a hundred years you can expect that people will invent the equivalent of fracking for gold if it goes up in price if it doesn't go in, up in price you lose if it goes up <laughs> in price they'll come up with a new technique to create it you know, and there's always the maybe we tap into an asteroid or maybe we mine the oceans or maybe, maybe people that buy gold realize that they ought to just flip it to digital gold and then all the demand for gold goes away and then you're screwed. Yeah. So back to electricity, Bitcoin is really just a power network to move energy across time and space. I could put, I, I, I can take $100 million converted into, well, $100 million of energy converted mm -hmm. into $100 million of fiat converted to $100 million of Bitcoin and send it forward 100 years with no drainage or power loss. It's a battery that doesn't drain. I can take the same amount of energy. I can take my energy, convert it to fiat, convert it to Bitcoin, send that $100 million of Bitcoin to Tokyo in 30 minutes, and maybe I pay five bucks, okay? You can't move $100 million of energy for $5 to Tokyo. So what you've got is an energy network where the battery never drains over time and where there is no transmission limit or cost over space. And that is revolutionary. And I don't think people that understand they're looking at gold or looking at any other treasury asset. I don't think they understand that this is a closed energy network that respects the first law of thermodynamics or it's, an, it's a Newtonian network. I take a pendulum, you know, and it converts kinetic energy to potential energy. Mm -hmm. And in the absence of friction, it will do this forever, right? That's, that's what the first closed system you learn in freshman physics in college. Yeah. That's Bitcoin. That's not gold. Gold's got friction. 2%, 3% a year is friction. It runs down. You know, yeah. fiat, 7 8% a year. You put $100 million of energy into fiat, wait 100 years, you've got less than 1% of your energy left. It's yeah. a battery that's draining. That's if years. history repeats itself, but it looks like that's going to accelerate. That might only take 10, 20 years this time around. <laughs> yeah, I, look, I was oblivious to this guy. I mean, I wasn't really paying attention 
until I got hit over the head with this crisis. And then I started paying attention. And then I realized, and then I read, I read Saifedean's book, you know, yeah. the Bitcoin standard. And then I'm like, oh my, under a good year for the past decade, the monetary supply expands by seven to eight percent. That's yeah. my battery draining by eight percent a year. That's yeah. a good year. And this is not a good year for us, right? This is a year where you can make the argument that the battery is going to drain 25%. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, potentially even more. Like if you, uh, have you ever heard of the Chapwood Index? I, I didn't until just a, about a month ago. Okay. And then I did. And I, I, I looked at it with horrifying awe. <laughs> it's like... And, and it, it all of a sudden turned my worldview upside down. And I, what I realized, you know, and I think nobody thinks about this. Look, there's an old quote, you know, we learned in all of our studies of propaganda and marketing, we learned that we can't tell people what to think, but we can tell them what to think about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the world thinks about inflation. We tell them to think about inflation and we point them towards CPI. But the truth is, <clears throat> the, big, the big misconception is that inflation is a scalar, and that scalar equals CPI, <clears throat> and that the methodology for calculating inflation is to collect the market basket of consumer goods that is cherry-picked and calculate CPI. But in fact, uh, a more sophisticated understanding is inflation is a vector. You know, inflation is, is uh, taking place at a different rate across different goods and services. So for yeah, example, yeah. the inflation rate of real estate on, on bordering on Central Park mm -hmm. for the past 30 years is not the CPI. Anybody that, you know, anybody that owns New York real estate knows that it went up faster. The inflation rate of beachfront real estate in South Florida is not the CPI. Yeah. 10 years ago, you could have bought a bond for a million dollars that gave you $50,000 a year in income. Today, that same bond would cost you $10 million. And so the inflation rate on an annuity, on an asset that yields an annuity, is a, it's a thousand percent over 10 years. So what is that per year, right? Let's kind of try to figure that out, right? You're yeah. talking about 35% a year? or I mean, some astronomical amount. And now, now we've got this little, it's kind of like an offensive patronizing, uh, patronizing uh, narrative. You know, guy, you're a consumer. You know, we're going to keep track of the cost of bread and candy bars and Domino's pizza. And we're yeah. going to make sure that it doesn't go up more than 2% for you. Because that's all you want. <laughs> all you want is Netflix and YouTube streaming and Domino's pizza. And, and we're going to make sure that doesn't get too expensive for you, guy. And on the other end, it, guy, if you wanted to buy an annuity so you'd never have to work again the rest of your life, that's not for you. you know, that's Don't think for about that. That's, you wouldn't want to not work not the rest of your life. That's yeah. not inflation. The fact that your annuity, your bond went up by 30% a year every year for 10 stinking years and now you have to work the rest of you have to work a thousand years in order to be able to afford a bond that gives you fifty thousand dollars a year at income don't worry about don't worry your pretty little head about that that is not inflation okay that's asset inflation that's not in the cpi but you know i i jokingly say like 
We have no inflation in this stuff manufactured by robots and factories and AIs in cyberspace. You have inflation on everything you want. Yeah. yeah. Right? What I want is I want an acre of beachfront property in South Florida. Yeah. What I want is a beautiful condominium. You know, what I want is to not have to work again the rest of my life. What I want is a Harvard education or Ivy League education for my son or daughter, right? That's yeah. what I want. That stuff has been going up in a good year, seven to eight percent. Yeah. But you know, it's horrifying to do the calculation of what is the inflation rate of a of a 10-year bond that actually that you can buy and use to not work or retire on. Because it, you know, I remember a guy when you could actually put your money in overnight. Um, this is 10 years ago overnight like repo market funds and you get paid 550 basis points overnight? So million, yeah, like zero duration short-term money wow. 500 five and a half percent interest i used to do it corporately so 10 million dollars yields five hundred thousand dollars in income you know uh and uh, and a million dollars gives you fifty five thousand dollars a year, and you can retire on that like normal person yeah. very well save their pennies and retire on that. You know, you care to ask me what that rate is today? <laughs> yes, actually, what is the rate? <laughs> I, I, I think like it went from five hundred and fifty basis points to seventeen mm. basis points. I'm surprised you can get positive. <laughs> you know, maybe you can get, maybe you can get 15, like we're talking about for, you know, we're talking about 15 one hundredths of 1%. So another way to say it, by the way, is that that bond went from costing a million dollars to costing $25 million guy in 10 years. That's but there's insane. no inflation. No inflation. These are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> There's no inflation. By the way, not only is there no inflation, your bond, your your light, your retirement cost went from a million dollars to twenty-five million. Even though there's no inflation, it's worse than that. We can't find inflation. We have to print more money to find inflation. Yeah. You know, they're not going to get it because the cost of YouTube and Netflix is not going up no matter how much money gets printed. Mm -hmm. They're going to get inflation in the assets. You know, so back to this issue, inflation's a vector. And if you stack up a list of a hundred things you want, there's 20 of them that aren't going to have an inflation and the other 80, you're going to have some inflation and you can cherry pick any market basket of, of that metric of that vector and make that your scaler and call that the CPI and you can manufacture an arbitrarily low one, and then you can say, I'm just kind of shocked that anybody thinks there's a problem. And of course the answer is, you know, you're not gonna be able to retire on a, on a fixed income annuity, and so therefore you gotta go buy equity. But in, in what way, shape, or form is that fair to, like, my, I'm gonna tell my father, a retired chief master sergeant in the Air Force, that he's gotta go become a qualified equity analyst and pick his stocks at age 82 in order to be yeah. able to not starve to death. That's one of the most ridiculous things to me is the, the sheer idea that we're going to force everyone in, in some effort to make the economy like more active, 
we're going to basically bleed everybody dry of the one asset that they can actually hold uh, independently of, of like cash. The thing that they worked for, like they already produced value into the economy. That's why they have money because they traded with someone. And then they're going to bleed that dry so that somebody has to figure out how the how the hell they just have a whole second job to figure out how to analyze stocks and bonds and all of these other things that they now have to put their money into for no reason when it's, it's like destroying the specialization of uh, the economy, especially specialization of labor. Like you're supposed to be able to learn one thing and then hold money like to, to actually trade with the rest of the economy. It's just, it's insane. It's a, it's a trap. What should be happening is that banks should be giving you 5% or more interest on your savings account risk-free. Yeah. And, and if you wanted to buy a bond that locks you up for five or 10 or 20 years, you should be able to get it for seven or eight from the government. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to take risk on a corporation, you should be getting 11, 12% for that risk. And then if you want something better, you should go into equity. That's, that's the way the world ought to be. If, if the free market was left to its own devices, yeah. that's how it would find itself. It's just, there's just, well, if we had real money, that would be, you, you would actually have to pay the price for capital. Um, like there'd be a real, there'd be a pushback. If you ever loaned out more than people could actually afford, you'd go out of business. Like you'd, you'd put yourself at huge risk. And when the bill came due and you had to withdraw the sound money, you wouldn't be able to fill the bill. You wouldn't be able to, the check would bounce. Um, but we just don't have that. Um, and the, I kind of want to ask, yeah, I want to ask about like, how does Bitcoin fit into this? What is in your mind? I mean, I'll, I'll say it seems it's crazy to me how quickly you seem to have gone down the rabbit hole here. Like this all happened this year, right? Like you oh, just kind of hit this with COVID. This all happened this year. Okay. How many people used Zoom on January 1st of this year? <laughs> that's okay, a big how, question and how many use it today right i mean I, we went from 10 million users to 350 or 400 million users i i'm not the only guy that got sent down a rabbit hole yeah. but a lot of people got sent down a rabbit hole in different areas um here's my thinking on this um we've got a crisis of confidence um in in uh status quo assets and uh and that has been building ever since the great you know financial crisis 10 years ago the people that are macro economists and very sensitive to this and the bitcoiners they were very sensitive they got it earlier right yeah. and uh and the rank and file were living kind of uh uh kind of living in a comfort zone because tech stocks are going up and the rest of the economy is going up and taxes are going down and interest are gradually going down. So no one else has got a crisis. And then, and then in March of this year, we have the pandemic and it just causes a rethinking of everything. And so what we, what we got was a V-shaped recovery in asset values and we got uh, no V-shaped recovery in Main Street and in the real economy. Yeah. And when that happened, uh, people like me that like to think that the world is rational, you know, and, and, and uh, maybe fear. Like I, I would tell you 
if you were to come to me and say, Mike, you can buy this bond, it yields 2% interest for the next, and you're going to lock up your money for the next 30 years, and you're going to get 2% interest. You know, I, I, I would have said to you on January 1st, I would have said, I don't think that makes any sense to, to like get paid 2%. You're, let me get this right. You're telling me that if I give you everything that I own, you will give me back 2% of what I own each year or, and you'll keep, you'll keep everything I own. And at the end of my lifetime, you'll give me back 20% of what I used to own. Okay. Paul, right, think that through, right? You're telling me that I'm going to give you everything that I own and you're going to give me back well, 20, 25% of it at the end of my life when I'm dead. I'm like, no, thank you. I, yeah. I just don't get it. So I wouldn't have taken that trade. Mm -hmm. that, uh, but guy, that trade is the long bond trade. And then after the COVID crisis and after the Fed started doing what they did, the long bond index went up 22%. So if you had actually invested your, all your money in that proposition, you would have gotten a 22% return this year. If you, and to me, that's a moral hazard. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. A, because, because the only way you make money, like giving, you give up your entire life forever in return for what's an awful proposition. And then you, and Guy, you say to me, well, don't worry, Mike, we're going to lobby the Fed to lower the interest rates. And that 2% bond is going to trade down to 1.2%. And then or, or the interest rate is going to trade down to 1.2%. And therefore, the bond is going to have to trade up 30 times the difference. And so you're going to get 30 times 1% or, or 30 times 0.8%. And that's where your 22% gain comes. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get it all in a hurry. You know, a lot of people much more sophisticated than me took that trade and they made that money. But there's just, there's just something unseemly about the idea that I have to give up everything that I own for the rest of my life in return for 25% of it back after I'm dead. And then I'm going to trust the, the central bankers to actually make me money and make me whole now. Right? That, yeah. That's socialized investment. Yeah. So that's it's what happened this year. Go ahead. Um, it's 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 hilarious. Like like I always try to because money is such a, is is something that so often confuses the dynamic of what's actually happening. Um, because people think of money as some unique thing. Uh, it's it's always funny to go back and look at like what's actually happening with the real resources. So imagine rather than that being like, you know, $50,000 in savings, it's a $50,000 car. Is it, it's, it's like a deal that says, look, I'm going to use your car for the next five years and you're only going to have to pay me $300 a year to do it. <laughs> you know, like, like rather than paying you rent on the car, you're just only going to lose a small amount. You're only gonna have to pay me a little bit for taking your car and driving it around everywhere. <laughs> I, and it's even worse than that because it's like, I'm going to take your car, drive it around. You're going to pay me money, but don't worry because in three months we're going to change the car interest rate to double negative and then we're going to give you back the value of your car when you <laughs> trade it to the next sucker that takes the, that you're, you're going to trade your You just have to dump it to somebody else. That's right. Yeah. We're going to charge you $300 to drive your, 
your car, but we're going to start charging other people $600 to, to drive their car, and they're going to buy your $300 negative car from you so that they don't have ah. $600. You know, it, you know it's so absurd. Painful. So now coming back to, to Bitcoin. So you see that, and, and what happens is the person holding cash, like I'm holding cash, and I didn't get the 22% capital gain. Because I didn't take the 2% for the rest of my life. Like I didn't take the bad value proposition, but I get screwed. Okay. Yeah. So now you start to realize that bonds trade up through the roof. Interest rates go to zero, right? Yeah. You could buy bonds and Wall Street's buying bonds, hoping they'll go below zero because that's the only way you make money on bonds. Yeah. The equity market goes to an all-time high. Big tech becomes the most crowded trade. You know, you have this bizarre distortion in the real estate market where, where uh, you know, you've got all these real estate assets and a lot of them are impaired. And so half of the real estate assets, no one's going to want going forward. And the other half are overpriced. So you can't really buy real estate. And then all of the short, you know, municipal bonds are going through the roof, even though the credit risk on municipals is also going through the roof. It's, nothing's making any sense. So the question is, I've got a bunch of cash. The negative real yield on cash looks to be minus 10 to minus 20%. I, you could make an argument that the negative real yield on cash this year is minus 20 to minus 25%. If you took that long bond index of 22%, take, you know, bonds inflated by 22%, therefore you're getting zero on your cash, therefore your negative real yield is 22%. Yeah. And and I so fully it, expect it to be in like kind of the twenty percent range of any of any serious like measurement. Um, you know, with technology and stuff, you get the massive benefit, like you talk about with like a net Netflix subscription. You get the massive benefit of the deflationary effects of technology. That those costs are always coming down because it's getting more efficient and better and storage and CPU, all that stuff. Um, but those real assets like real estate, uh, bonds, like all that stuff, like I fully expect it to be kind yeah. of a twenty percent range. When's the last time an economist decided to put a Picasso painting or a sweet penthouse in New York City or a Hamptons house <laughs> or an Ivy League education or, or a bond that lets you retire for the rest of your life? When do they put that into a market basket? Yeah. They're, ne yeah. they're never going to put anything cool or a yacht or a jet or... <laughs> You know, they're never going to put anything cool that you would strive for into that market basket. So they're always going to duck that. But, uh, you know, so if real, we could debate what it is. Who knows what it is? But minus 20% on, you got a 20% ash inflation rate this year, and maybe you'll get a 10% every year for the next decade. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could easily, and you could get worse, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. could, but, but if you were getting 7%, it, real inflation in the last decade, the logical forecast is it's more in the next decade, right? It could be double. Oh, yeah. Let's yeah. say it's double. So you're looking at 15% negative real yield on cash for the next 10 years. You know, God, the rule of 70 crazy. says that it gets cut in half, right? Every four years. That means you're going to have about 20% of your money at the end of the decade if you're sitting on cash, if that. So how so hard was this sell to 
everybody at MicroStrategy. How hard was it to kind of go through this whole rabbit hole? With every, was everybody kind of on the same page? Or was this kind of a big, like, argue with each other and take our own routes? Well, I mean, the good news this year, and this is an interesting thing that happened, Guy, that the conventional talking heads and the conventional investment advisors, they don't understand Bitcoin and they can't sell you Bitcoin but they do understand inflation and they do understand that when the Fed prints money and then stocks go through the roof and bonds go through the roof while Main Street shuts down, yeah, they do yeah. understand that this is inflationary. And so their prescription to everybody, you know, if you're, if you're a, a retired, you know, investor, Merrill Lynch is going to tell you, you should put 25% of your portfolio into gold. So, so they're all coming to, you should go to, you should put it into tangible assets that are inflation hedges. You know, for a while they said buy big tech. That's great. The buy big tech 10 years after it was an obvious good idea to buy big tech, <laughs> right? That's what happened this year, you know? Um, for a while they said that, but now if you look at a JP Morgan, a Morgan, a, a Morgan Stanley, a Bank of America, Citigroup, all the big mega wealth advisors, they're all going to say up your portion of your portfolio in precious metals or other mm -hmm. inflation hedges. So the traditional things. Yeah. You have to be living under a rock. Yeah. To not have heard that. Right. Yeah. So then the discussion just become <clears throat> at, at the board level. Hey guys, we have a lot of cash. What are we going to put it in? Do you want to buy, do you want to buy Apple stock at the all time high or Amazon stock at the all time high? Do you want to buy a, a, a mixture of the S&P 500? Do you want to buy a portfolio of commercial real estate? Well, you know, you can't buy a portfolio of stocks when it's a crowded trade at the all-time high. And, and, and equity risk is huge. <clears throat> you know, you, I could talk about why that's a risky thing, but we'll, we'll jump on to real estate. You can't buy a market basket portfolio of commercial real estate right now. Just can't practically do it. At a, who's going to sell you real estate at a good value this year? Yeah. Right. Um, you're, you're getting a double whammy because, of course, the cap rates are, are insane because the interest rate's gone through the floor. So it's, it's double inflated. So you're down to precious metals or Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. So mm -hmm. it really becomes that is it silver, is it gold or is it Bitcoin? Mm -hmm. And so when you work through that, you know, you have to parse through all the other cryptos. But but uh, the fundamental observation is. Bitcoin is the dominant crypto, and you know I I don't I don't think the the dominance number that's printed by the media and crypto is right. They talk about Bitcoin being sixty percent of crypto. That's kind of good if the goal is to get a lot of people to buy a lot of altcoins and, and yeah. that. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, if you look at real Bitcoin dominance, crypto uh, Bitcoin is ninety two percent, and then Bitcoin Cash is two percent, and the next one is one and a quarter percent. And the next one is less than 1%. And anybody with half a brain can just stack up the top 10 proof of work, decentralized crypto networks that purport to be a store of value. Right. And, and fundamentally, you just got to get to the idea it's a store of value. Some people just don't get it. They think that we need to be able to pay for our coffee and crypto. We, we need, <laughs> you don't, but yeah. you just don't. Like you can use Apple Pay and Square Cash and PayPal. There's nobody in the universe walking around worrying that the Fed is going to take their $5 
from their coffee and make it $4 for their coffee. That's yeah. not what keeps you up at night. We're worried about losing everything. Yeah. That's <laughs> not a multi-trillion dollar problem. That's like, that's the one thing that you can count on that nobody really cares about a $2 purchase, you know? Go back uh, 50 years. It's the savings account versus the checking account. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe if you grew up in the seventies or eighties or whatever, you had a savings account, you had a checking account, you put most of your money in your savings account and you got 6% interest. And then you put a small amount of money in your checking account and you got no interest. And that worked fine for people. So, so uh, if you look at the crypto networks that are savings accounts, yeah. that are going to keep, they're going to protect your life force for the next hundred years. It's got to be a proof of work network that's decentralized with a massive hash rate. 92% is Bitcoin. By yeah. the way, like, if you look at every other technology network, go back and look at Apple, go, you know, in 2010, you know, look at Google, look at YouTube, look at Facebook, look at Instagram, you know, look at uh, Amazon. This is not a complicated problem. You can see it in my book, The Mobile Wave. It was very obvious. Find a digital network that's dematerializing products and services. It's, it's dematerializing them on a network. When it's $100 billion in market cap, it's probably one. If yeah. it's 10 times bigger than the next thing, you know, when you were looking at like iOS versus Android versus BlackBerry. Yeah. Okay. You know, they're like, well, I think Android's going to beat iOS. It's like, I said, guys, 90% of the money is on iOS, right? 10% <laughs> of the money, 20% is on Android. And then everything else is going to zero, right? There's going to be a big one. And then when you did the calculation, Apple was maybe 20% of the units of the iPhone they were 150% of the profit of every mobile phone company. So like every, and this is what happened. That's crazy. Right? The yeah. dominant player not only makes all the money, they make more than all the money. And, and when HP wants to launch their own mobile phone, or when IBM wants to launch their own mobile phone, or Yo-Yo Dine wants to get into it, it's just utterly impossible. And the answer, the, the reason why it's, pretty obvious if you look at YouTube or look at Twitter or look at Facebook, it's like when 187 million people use the same thing and when you can package a new, uh, a new thing and put it up on the network and, and ship it to a billion people overnight for a nickel, yeah. it's not likely anybody else is going to be able to compete with that economy of scale. You're manufacturing something to 100 million people in a day. For, and shipping it for zero variable cost. Yeah. Never in the history of the world could someone ship a product or a service to a billion people for zero variable, and, and not quite zero, you got cost of electricity, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can ship it for the cost of electricity. Yeah. Right, you've got a dominant digital network. That thing at 100 billion is going to go to a trillion. Yeah. It's going to, and then it's gonna go to two trillion. And then people are going to talk about it. But when it's 100 billion, conventional thinkers on Wall Street, they're going to say to you, guy, they're going to say, well, you know, uh, if Apple goes up again, we're going to sell Apple and buy you some Dell and some HP and some IBM in order to diversify your computer interests. Huh. 
And then they're going to say, you know, when Amazon doesn't make any money, it doesn't make any money. We're going to buy you some Walmart or some, you know, a portfolio. Or then they're going to say, you know. Uh, Network uh, effects are, are a bitch. <laughs> they're going to say, they're say, when 25% of your portfolio is technology, we're going to sell up to 5%. We're going to sell 20% of it. And we're going to put you into consumer cyclicals or some, you know, something else that's more dependable and, and electric utilities or something like that, you know? And what they don't realize is, number one, the dominant player, you know, is going to take everything. Yeah. Like everything. It's just, yeah. you know. And the, the other effects in Bitcoin and money are so much more potent even than something like social media and like, like just because like, you know, at least in like social media, you can have an account on Facebook and MySpace at the same time, but you can't hold the same, the same piece of value in both Bitcoin and an altcoin or both Bitcoin and fiat. You have to choose explicitly. And there's a huge trade-off. There's a huge risk in not choosing the one that's going to be dominant or the one that is clearly dominant today. Bitcoin is the first perfected digital monetary network in the history of the world. It doesn't lose energy over time or space. It reflects the laws. It, it, it respects the laws of thermodynamics. It's never been done before. It's dominating everything that competes with it, right? There's no reason to believe it won't be 10 times bigger than 100 times bigger than 1,000 times bigger. Yeah. And it's just, it, it's hard to see how you stop it. Now, com coming back to this investment thesis, here's the big idea. Once you've got the dominant digital network, it's going to take everything in its space. Yeah. It's, going to, it's going to expand to be 80, 90% of this market. There might be a 10% or something, but that's not going to make any money. It's just, it, it's not going to work. And it's going to take everything in its space, all of the free energy in the space, and it's just going to keep growing from that point of view. And no one's going to be able to attack it. Now, here's the other big idea. All these smart investors on Wall Street that tell you you got too much technology. They're going to diversify your out of technology. Well, there really isn't any winning technology. There isn't any winning investment strategy other than technology. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the idea that only 25% of, of the marketplace is technology is a defective, ignorant idea, right? Every successful company in the modern, for the last hundred years, they were all technology companies when they were growing. They, when they stop growing, that means that their technology is not cutting edge anymore. And so Westinghouse was a technology company, GE was a technology company, you know, Standard Oil, if you read the history of John D. Rockefeller, he did everything that Jeff Bezos did 100 years earlier. Yeah. Like the entire playbook, you know, was John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie. It, you know, if you think you know how to create steel, read, read American Steel about what it means to create a steel refinery. Yeah, that's you another one that just is so cool to me, like like digging into the, some of that stuff. I don't think I've ever done an episode on the show about that one. That's probably another one to really dig into, this, the history of steel and how it just like cut like by 80% the cost of steel like everywhere. Just, oh my God, that whole story is fascinating. And that takes us to our next subject, which is, <clears throat> which is uh, the 
it's the, the economic impact of an elemental material on an industry. Yeah. Bitcoin, Bitcoin is, is crypto gold. It's digital gold. It's at least a hundred times better than gold. I think it's probably thousands <laughs> of times better than gold. That's the story that no, that people are afraid to say. They haven't really yeah. thought it through because they come at this from a point of view of a, a macroeconomists. So they know it's harder than gold, stock to flow, but, but, mm-hmm. but they undersell it. It's like, well, stock to flow just crossed over gold. Guys, that's not it. If you look at a hundred years, stock to flow is infinity for yeah, Bitcoin. It's, in, it's infinite. Yeah. It's infinite for Bitcoin. So infinity versus over the stock to flow of gold. It's a very high number. Right? <laughs> so, so yeah, it's better for that infinity reason. Infinity divided by anything is infinity. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't really got to the issue that's at, at hand, which is digital gold is smarter, faster, stronger than gold. Just yeah. in the same way that your YouTube podcast is smarter, faster, stronger than you getting invited to go on conventional network television late night or in yeah. prime time. Uh, it's, you know, it's, you want to actually ship a DVD with this show out to people that want to buy it and sell it through Walmart and Blockbuster? Or do you want to upload this to YouTube? It's not, it's, it's not like just slightly better. So crypto gold. Can I ask you, can I I ask you a question on that thread? Um, I don't want to get you off topic, but um, with the mobile wave, you hit so many of the elements, like, like you kind of hit those, those core pieces of like, there's this revolution in battery technology. Um, there's a revolution in the interface. You talk a lot about like multi-touch and how like interacting with it was a huge player. And then you extrapolate all these things that are going to happen and kind of how we're going to change how we think about this stuff. And literally, you could have just been writing a book. So far, what I've gotten out of it is you could have just been describing what's going on today. And, you know, you wrote this about a decade ago. What do you see with Bitcoin? Well, like, like, Taking it out 10 years, what does Bitcoin change in those fundamentals that <clears throat> causes a shift in, in how uh, we interact and think about money? The, mo- the mobile wave is all about how when a product goes from, uh, from material state with mass and, uh, and friction to software, it dematerializes to software. It becomes magical, right? Uh, and uh, and I described all the magical things. And you're you're I mean, Zoom's magical. The camera, oh, yeah. the iPhone's yeah. magical. Instagram's magical. The things that we do today, the guys at Kodak couldn't conceive yeah. of. Right. You think about what we're doing right now is just kind of batshit crazy. Just go yeah. back, go back a couple of years, and you're like, wait, really? <laughs> yeah. So now imagine magical gold. Bitcoin is digital gold. It's stronger, fast, strong. It's magical gold. So, so what does that mean? Well, $100 million of gold weighs about 3,000 pounds. I can dematerialize it to no weight in Bitcoin. To take 3,000 pounds of gold from New York to Tokyo would cost you $250,000 by the time you paid for the jet, the security, the insurance. And it would require you um, a week, 100 hours right? To move $100 million of Bitcoin from New York to Tokyo with physical delivery on the blockchain would cost you five bucks transaction fee. And it would take you what 30 minutes, 60 minutes, depending upon how many confirmations you want. 
call it an hour. 60 minutes if you pay a dollar, you know, 20 minutes if you pay five. (laughs) So there you go. 20 minutes versus one week. Is it faster? It's faster. Is it smarter? Well, you know, I put the I put the gold in a vault. It sits there for seven years. It's a dumb rock. It's a it's a it's a dumb rock. There's no software in it. I, I wrap a piece of software around Bitcoin. I go to sleep. The software scans a thousand exchanges. It looks at a hundred thousand counterparties. It figures out who wants to give me the most for the Bitcoin if I lend it to them or if I, or if I don't lend it to them. It chops it into a thousand pieces. It zips it back and forth at the speed of light. Because By the way, you can do this all off chain. You don't have to do it on chain, right? You can do, at the point that I made the other day is when we traded Bitcoin, we did 88,000 off chain transactions to do 18 on chain transactions. So, so you can do this stuff at the speed of, of light and you can do hundred thousand transactions an hour the goal is still sitting there is it smarter yeah i can turn on a piece of software that'll run for the next hundred years that'll always be thinking about how to do what i want it to do and and the mobile wave i describe uh digital money what if i what if i want to actually endow uh, maybe maybe i got a family so i create a trust and the trust is in bitcoin wrapped in a piece of software when my daughter turns 18 she gets some money Every year thereafter, she gets more money, you know? And And the craziest thing is you can do that without a counterparty. Like you can just write that into Bitcoin. So smarter, faster, and stronger. The stronger part is, is try to walk down the street in Istanbul on a Saturday afternoon at 4 p.m. and liquidate $100 million of gold sitting in a vault in New York City. (laughs) What, What do you think your haircut would be on that? Like, do you think you could even, you think you could actually liquidate it for a 90% discount? Yeah. yeah. I don't like, even, I don't somebody think, in Istanbul, like in that span? No, no, yeah, no can't, can't be done. I can, I could be standing in Istanbul, right? With my mobile phone with a hundred million dollars of Bitcoin. And I trade the stuff guy. So I can tell you, if you wanted to dump a hundred million dollars on a Saturday afternoon, you could do it with a 3% or 4% haircut and you would get 95 million in cash in any currency of your choice in 60 minutes. But if you had a bit more patience and you took three hours, you could do it with no haircut. Okay. So stronger. Yeah. It's, it's stronger for a lot of reasons. I can liquidate it anytime, any minute of the day. I can, I can prove I've got it. It gets audited every 10 minutes right? I can give you the ability and I can prove to you I own it and you can check it every 18 seconds. And I can simultaneously do that with a thousand counterparties a year with Mm -hmm. a computer controlling the counterparties on a decentralized network. Now tell me how gold's going to do that. Speaking of proof, I got a question. Do you guys run a node? I, I, I can't talk Okay. About exactly how we handle our crypto and what we do. I'd like to, but it's just uh, my security team would, they would spank me. Right? <laughs> I have answers. I, oh, I, we'll skip all over point, that. I, I had about 50 talk, questions about it. So. <laughs> maybe we'll talk more about how we handle that stuff, but I just can't. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. We'll, so, leave, that, uh, we'll leave that on the table then. I want to make that last point about elemental 
you know, paradigm shifts driven by elemental inventions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, uh, look at the history of uh, architecture, civil engineering. You build your houses with wood, they're two stories. You build your houses with masonry, they're five stories. When we invented steel, we built 100-story houses. Yeah. Steel is elemental to civil engineering. It's almost the perfect material. Take it away, the entire civil, all, all of modern architecture collapses, all of it. That's why Andrew Carnegie mattered. Now, let's go to the next thing, aluminum. You ever try to build a steel airplane? They don't <laughs> fly. Can't be done. Yeah. If we didn't invent aluminum, there would be no aviation industry. It is literally that simple. Take the aluminum away, it doesn't fly. There's nothing, nothing at all. Now go to oil. Before John D. Rockefeller, we're burning kerosene, you know, at best. We're, we're like chasing around the world. Is that or whale oil? Whale oil. <laughs> okay. John D. Rockefeller harnesses not just crude oil, but the distribution network. And he drives down the price of energy by a factor of a thousand. You know, a, ma- a factor of a thousand, you know, like. Yeah, that's crazy. 10 cents a kilowatt hour. The world, you know, cheap free energy is, is the bedrock of civilization. Now, Bitcoin. What is, what is the finance industry based on? It's based upon like uh, one-year-old representations. My accountant fills out a personal financial statement as of December 31st, 2019. I hand it to a bank four months later, and they decide whether they want to do business with me. That's too slow. The reason yeah. that, look, the reason that, that uh, our announcement had credibility is because publicly traded companies have armies of accountants and lawyers that look over everything that I say. And if I lie to you, it's a criminal offense and I go to jail. Yeah. Not just that. If a person that works for a person that works for a person lies about something and I endorse it, I might still be criminally liable. Okay, so, so the credibility of a CFO and the CEO of a publicly traded company in America on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange is the highest credibility of any statement anybody on earth can make because, because not only am I criminally liable and I've got a set of regulators, I have an army of people around me and it ripples down and they become reliable. So I can't yeah. do it without all my directors, all my officers, all my outside counsel, all my auditors being aligned. And that is the price. That's, and that's why public companies can issue equity and debt, right? Yeah. But guy, if, if instead of that, a company said to you, we're, gonna, we're going to transparently, uh, we're gonna transparently share our, you know, our uh, public key, and this is our crypto, or, and or we're going to put it in a, a multi-sig, relationship and if you could verify the one billion dollars worth of crypto a private company had or an individual had at that point you don't rely upon 3,500 publicly traded companies to trust about every three months I tell you my balance sheet every Mm -hmm. three months and then if it changes materially we have to report in two three four business days But imagine a world where any private individual can t- report to you within 10 minutes. Yeah, you're going and, from and verifiable proof, not even like a maybe the accountants got it wrong or like what's the what's the difference? Like you can straight up sign and know 100% without question. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely so insane. In that way, crypto gold 
is the bedrock of, of a modern, a 21st century economy where, where, where hundreds of thousands, if not millions of counterparties can trade and trust each other with large, uh, transparent, real-time certainty that, that uh, collateral has not been double-pledged, rehypothecated, and there's no fraud. Yeah. And, and that changes the speed with which we do stuff it, by a factor of a million. Yeah. And that's why you can't just say it's a little bit better than gold. Yeah. And of course, I'm not even talking about all of the paper debt, you know, commercial debt, sovereign debt. I mean, that stuff's so far down below gold in terms of tangible that it is, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, that's 18, 18 layers of risk. I, I, know, I know you. But uh, I got to leave you with one more metaphor. Okay. You know, okay. If, if, uh, if you're going to actually build, uh, build your treasury based upon cash or, or uh, debt instruments, mm -hmm. It's like trying to cross the Atlantic in a rubber raft with a leak in it. <laughs> if you're going to build your treasury on gold, it's like crossing the Atlantic in a wooden ship. It will, it will work the for, fine for a year or two, but for 100 years back and forth, the wooden ship is eventually going to spring a leak. Yeah. If you want to cross the Atlantic in, in Bitcoin, it's like a thousand foot long steel hulled freighter. You choose what you want to use. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. I got to run, guy. I mean, Dude, I'm going to run. I know. You're, we, we, we crossed your, your limit here. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Um, again, uh, major kudos to the uh, conviction you have on this and basically the precedent you set here. Um, so, uh, it's, it's awesome talking to you. If we hopefully get a chance to do this again, I know I've got a million questions I could bug you with. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, man. Take it easy. Things are changing fast. Um, I genuinely think the move that Michael and the team over at MicroStrategy has made, um, I think this will actually change the Overton window of what is acceptable. I think it's going to be a major part of what gives social permission to other CEOs and other companies to start looking at their balance sheets, to start looking at their cash holdings and put Bitcoin in the conversation. I think up to now, it's been one of those things that's just a little bit taboo. It's a little bit too uncomfortable and we don't want to go there. But now with how this has unfolded and the commitment that MicroStrategy has made to this, um, I think this is a major development. And it is obvious that Michael is incredibly knowledgeable about this. And I'm still blown away that he's basically, he's just gone down the rabbit hole so fast and understood so many of the fundamental elements and the fundamental use case, like the fundamental reason Bitcoin is a revolutionary technology. It's just really commendable. And also, uh, if you haven't read it, heard it, whatever, uh, I got to recommend The Mobile Wave. I am, like I said in the episode, I'm only about three hours into it, but I am really enjoying this. Um, and I think it's actually got a lot of insight into how we could think about Bitcoin moving forward. If you you look at some of the fundamental shifts, what the cost of this, that, or the other, and he, he's even getting into what the political consequences of having social media in your pocket might be. 
Um, and uh, to be able to like really wrap your head around that perspective and see just how accurate a lot of the conversation is about what it looks like today and then applying that to Bitcoin, I highly recommend the book. Um, it's a fascinating read so far. I have a link to uh, Michael Saylor's uh, social media so that you can follow him, um, as well as a link to the book on Audible and Amazon so that you can check it out if you want to get your copy of it. And, of course, a thank you to our newest supporter um, and really cool wallet, Hexa Wallet. Still a little bit kicking myself that I haven't dug into this wallet prior to now. But go to hexawallet.io if you want to check it out and shoot me any questions you have. Um, uh, if you you know want to play around with it or uh, find out some of the key features of this thing. Um, Built-in multi-sig for the savings. Um, and really cool Shamir secret sharing backup for just the normal uh, single key wallet. And you can just find that on the App Store or go to hexawallet.io. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss all of the amazing works all the fantastic chats, and of course, the glorious Guys Take episodes on Bitcoin Audible. And one way you can always support this show is by just sharing it out and also leaving a review. Leave a review on the Apple uh, uh, App Store and or the Google Play Store. It's actually a huge help to have uh, reviews on the podcast. So thank you so much to everyone who has. And for everybody who hasn't, take a second if you got it and leave us a review. I am Guy Swan, and I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, take it easy, guys. This has been a 111 production and you were listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.